Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is there anyone I need to forgive? It's a hard question, but maybe one that we should be pondering as we look at this text in Matthew chapter 18. I wonder who would be on your list. There was a pastor who said that he once asked his congregation, he said, so how many here have someone they need to forgive? And, you know, one or two raised their hands. Then he started to explain, well, is there anyone that you hold a grudge against, that you're nursing a grudge against? And a few more raised their hands. And they said, is there anyone that you sort of feel bitterness and anger towards? A few more. Anyone that you just avoid seeing? Any that you feel coldness towards, a hardness towards? And then slowly as he started to explain how sometimes this lack of forgiveness hides behind a smile and on. Pretty much everybody had raised their hand, except there was an older woman in the front, 98 years old, and she was just smiling, and she never raised her hand. He said, Rose, I can't believe you're 98 years old. You don't have anybody that you need to forgive? She says, nope. She says, how did you do that? 98 years old, and nobody that you need to forgive. She says, easy, I outlived them all. Well, for the rest of us, it's not quite so easy, you know. Everybody is bumped and bruised as we walk through life. And so there's a need to learn the art of forgiveness. And in this text, Jesus tells us that this is a godly art. It comes right from God's own nature. And if we don't learn it well, we'll be left broken and forsaken by God. So I'd like to look at this text, and I'm going to look at it in terms of questions. So first I'm going to look at Peter's question, and then unasked questions, questions we should ask, and then lastly, the key question that this text raises. So Peter's question is an easy one. I mean, it's one that I'm sure we all have faced. It's about a brother, someone in his life, 
who keeps offending him repeatedly. And the brother evidently here acknowledges his wrong. I mean, that's why Peter is feeling the urge or the necessity to forgive him. And it's a wrong. This is not an accident. It's not a mistake. This is a wrong because it's a wrong that requires forgiveness. There's the kind of things that happen to us that might offend us, but we don't need to require forgiveness from them. If you're walking down a crowded hallway and you get bumped, well, that's an accident. But if you're walking down a hallway and someone trips you seven times, then you need to think about, well, I have an option. I either forgive them or I don't forgive them. That's not an accident anymore. And we know that there are advantages to not forgiving someone. I mean, many of us think that, why should I put myself out? There's a kind of a comfort in just staying where we are. But the question that this text raises is the opposite one. Is there a harm to myself? Is there a danger to my soul if I don't forgive someone? The rabbis had said that, well, you know, if someone is repeatedly offending you two or three times, you forgive them. After that, you're free. So Peter goes, wow, I'm really generous. How about if I forgive them seven times? And he raises this question, Jesus, is that enough? And Jesus answers with a story. And the story is pretty obvious. The king decides to settle accounts among his debtors as someone who owes him, it says, 10,000 talents. By the way, when you read that, you're not supposed to try to translate that into a dollar amount. It's a symbol in the story, isn't it, of something huge. 10,000 here in Greek is the highest numeral. So this is like saying a gazillion dollars, you know, or a million pounds of gold. A lot of money. That's what it's saying. He owes him a lot. We don't know how it happened, but obviously some bad choices were made, right? Maybe 70 times 7 bad choices were made so that he accumulated a debt like this, and he'll never be able to pay it back. And the king says, sell him. Sell his family. Sell all his goods. Probably a kind of indentured servitude where he and his family would serve until the debt was paid off, which in this case would be forever. And the servant falls on his face crying for mercy. He makes these, you know, you say crazy things when you're in trouble. I'll pay it all back. He could never pay it back. But the king ignores that foolish offer and he gives them far more than the servant ever would have thought of asking. He forgives the entire debt. In verse 27 it says he does it because he felt compassion for him. It wasn't because of his clever begging or this you know, deal-making, this offer he made. It was because of who the king was. He was compassionate. That's what this text is saying. He is inclined to show mercy. And so he poured out his mercy on this servant. That's the real answer to Peter's question, that the king is inclined to show mercy. That's the point of this story in this text. Now, I don't know if you can imagine, how would you feel if this was you? You know, this huge, enormous debt just lifted off of you. This burden is gone, something you've worried about. You've lost sleep over it. You don't know what to do, and now it's just gone. I think you'd feel like floating. You know, you'd be singing. You'd go to your employees and say, take the day off. You'd take your friends out to eat, to celebrate. You'd buy gifts for your families. You'd feel wonderful, wouldn't you? But not this, not this man. And I think that shows there's something deeply flawed that he's broken. Because what he does 
First of all, he's unchanged, unmoved by this enormous mercy. But in verse 28, he found someone who owed him a pittance. Probably something like a half year's salary. And he grabs him by the throat. He begins to choke him. He doesn't offer to buy him a steak dinner in celebration and offer to forgive the debt. No, he chokes him. He's full of anger and he says, if you don't pay me right now, I'm going to throw you in the debtor's jail. And since the man is unable to pay, that's where he ends up. All of this is someone who is spiritually, mentally, emotionally broken, morally bankrupt. Really, we'd say a pathetic figure. I think when you look at this man, we think, I know him. He's the model for every miser, every unhappy Ebenezer Scrooge type of person that's in every story that we've ever read. Unforgiveness leaves us broken. I think there's hints of that in the story itself. Verse 31, his own colleagues turn on this Scrooge. They know he's a hypocrite. He's cruel. He's hard. Something's wrong that he isn't responding to this mercy that was shown him. And they, of course, turning him in to the king. He's blind to what's valuable in life. Even after what's happened to him, this great mercy that's been shown to him, mercy is not sweet to him. Not as sweet as a little bit of money. He doesn't understand the value of things in life. And he thinks he has great power. When he grabs this servant that owes him a hundred denarii, he thinks he's maybe in the place of that king. Because when we have power over an other individual, we sometimes relish it far more than we should. And it's dangerous. So that man begs for his mercy, this Scrooge's mercy, with exactly the same words that this man used before the king. You know, Jesus uses the same expression for a reason. The same words, but they don't echo in his mind and don't remind him of what words he said to the king, who is a picture of the Lord God. He enjoys the power to withhold forgiveness more than the joy of showing mercy. He wants to be in the place of the king, but he doesn't have the heart of mercy which the king has. And finally, why is he broken? Well, I think verse 35 strikes us like lightning. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So he's forsaken by God himself. Imagine the God of glory, the creator of life, turning his back on you. How can it not affect us body, mind, soul? And the sentence is from the King of Kings that he will be in this prison till he pays back this infinite debt. So yeah, I think this verse is talking about our final judgment. It's talking about the end destiny for those who have rejected the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But there's a question here in this story. When does this sentence begin? I wonder if it's okay to think that this torment really begins in this life. Certainly the story allows that. In fact, the language suggests that. That even in this life, God turns his back on those who refuse to offer forgiveness to others. It begins here. So imagine what life is like if God purposely withdraws from you his protection, his provision, 
His grace, which is poured out upon all of humanity, what if he withdraws from you the blessings of life? Who would rush in? What kind of torment would there be for our lives if that were to happen? Isn't the devil himself one of these tormentors? In Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, it says that if we harbor this kind of anger, the kind of bitterness and anger that burns unnoticed in the heart of one who has not forgiven others, then it gives a foothold to the devil. And don't you think that devil is the tormentor in the life of one who's been abandoned by God? So that's what I mean. This is a broken man. This is a broken woman who refuses to forgive. We don't want this. And because we don't want this, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask all kinds of practical questions about forgiveness, and they're important questions. I think Peter's question is a good one. How often do I forgive someone who repeatedly offends me? How can I trust someone who has broken his trust by sinning against me over and over? How do I protect myself? What if she never asked for forgiveness? Then what do I do? As I said, these are important and crucial questions. I hope that I can talk about some of these on Wednesday night because there isn't time to talk about all of this now, but Jesus himself points us to something that is behind all those questions. In fact, we really can't address those questions until we first deal with the foundational issues that Jesus deals with in this parable. The questions we have to ask first. So that brings me to the unasked questions. So here's three related questions that we should ask, but we seldom do. Questions about unforgiveness. Here's the first one. Why does God care if I don't forgive my fellow man or my sisters or brothers in the church? I mean, if I don't forgive Woody here, why does that affect my relationship with Paul? Why are they related? I mean, I'll deal with this. Meanwhile, I can enjoy my friendship over here, right? They're not related. We compartmentalize. We think we can deal with one relationship in one way and have the rest of our life unaffected by that separate issue. But God does not allow us to build those compartments. The picture I have in mind is of a spider's web. You know how a spider's web works? It's this thin gossamer structure. And if an insect lands anywhere, the whole web jiggles and the spider knows something has been caught. And the same thing is true with unforgiveness. Every part of our life is disturbed when any part, any relationship is tinged with unforgiveness. Even our relationship to God is disturbed when we don't forgive others. It's a web, not compartments that are separated from each other. So here's a second question. How does unforgiveness then affect my relationship with God? Here's the truth, and this parable illustrates it, that God loves mercy. God loves to show mercy, but God just loves mercy, and therefore his children have a nature like him. Those who are genuinely born of him share his nature. So Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 1, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5 in Ephesians says, Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Children do what their father does. We're like him. So it affects our relationship because he loves mercy and he loves to see his children being merciful. 
we talk about the Lord's Prayer. We recite it often. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught his disciples to pray with that prayer. And the first sentence is magnificent, isn't it? It prioritizes our thinking that your kingdom come. It says that above all, we want God's sovereign rule to come into our lives and in the world and in our churches. Our theology is based on that, and properly so. I think that's very good. But notice, and I think this should give us pause. At the end of the prayer, there's only one sentence that Jesus re-emphasizes. It's Matthew 6, 14 and 15. He says, here's how you pray, and then he adds this. If you forgive others, your Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive you. We say very blithely, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I think Jesus knew this would just fly right by us. We would say it without thinking. We would repeat it at home or in church or in a thousand other places without ever thinking that this issue of forgiveness matters deeply to God. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. So if we say, does it affect our relationship with God? Yes, according to the words of Jesus. And then here's the third question. Well, then is it a sin to not forgive? Is it just, you know, a struggle like, I don't like broccoli. It's a little bit of struggle to eat broccoli. No, it's not like that. Is it a sin not to forgive? Well, notice what the king does here. Who is a picture of God? He judges the man who refuses to forgive. Judgment comes from God. People know when you aren't forgiving. I know we hide it. We're pretty good, we think. But people can read our body language. They can read the tone of our voice. They can see our behavior towards the person whom we have not forgiven. God can certainly see all that. And what's more, he can see our heart. And that's why this text concludes with that verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart. From your heart. Our hearts are as clear as day to God. And so, finally, that leads me to the key question. The one to which this story is pointing. The question that's raised in the hearts of everyone who have understood this parable and seen how important this issue of forgiveness is, that it's critical to God and therefore critical to me. And the key question then is, how can I forgive from the heart? How can I do this? I'm struggling with this. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what she did to me. How can I forgive from the heart? From the heart means without reservation, means sincerely. It means without nursing any Grudges, not seeking any harm to the person in any degree, not gossiping against them, not dreaming about getting back against them. But why? Why would I do this? Why would someone who's been hurt do this? Why would someone who's been hurt seven times do this? Never mind seven times, 70 times. The real question is, what gives us the power to forgive? It's not in us. This is not in us. Friends, I don't think it's natural to forgive, not the way Jesus is describing it here. It's not natural to forgive 70 times 7. C.S. Lewis said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until there is something to forgive. In theory, forgiveness is wonderful until we have to do it. So we need something outside of us, friends. We need a power beyond us. We need a supernatural power. We need the power of God. So how does it 
come to us? I think Jesus' answer in this story is clear. We forgive the small debts that are owed to us by remembering forever the enormous debt that God has forgiven us. That's the secret. Every debt others owe us is tiny compared to what we have done in wronging others. So we have to put it on that scale. We have to compare them. It's not something that we ordinarily do, and it's not something that many books would even recommend doing, but it's the secret that Jesus says we must do. Now, I, as I was thinking about this, I realized there's people here who don't know what a scale is exactly. I use that word, so I made a really silly little scale here. Let me just show you. Here's a scale, and it's balanced. So on one side, let's put all the precious little things that have been taken from you. You know, you've been offended. People have been disloyal. People have gossiped against you. People have slandered you. People have stolen from you. And you know, when you look at the scale like that, you have a pretty good case. Why should I forgive them? Justice is on my side. And it sounds pretty good. Except what goes on the other side? See, that's what Jesus is saying. When we think about the hurts that people have done to me, we see them in absolute terms as though... I'm hurt and that's all that matters. But Jesus says, no, compare your hurt to the hurt you've caused God. So what goes on the other side? Well, what goes on the other side is the billion pieces of gold that you owe God. You know, there you go. That's dramatic. You have to compare it. You have to compare it. That's what Jesus is saying. The power to forgive comes from experiencing the mercy of God, the infinite mercy of God that has been poured out to us in Christ Jesus. That's where we begin as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you have trouble forgiving, go back to the cross. Every time you have trouble forgiving, you have to think about what your sin, which you may think is small, has done to the glory of God and what it cost God to forgive you. And that grace changes us. See, if we've really experienced the grace of God in Christ on the cross, it must change us or else we haven't really experienced that grace. I think that's the other lesson of this parable. It makes us lovers of mercy. We just love mercy the way God loves mercy because we're his children. We love to show mercy, to demonstrate mercy, to encourage mercy. We love to forgive as we've been forgiven. That's the way grace works. Mercy and grace from God is not just something we get, then we go away. It's more like a holy yeast. It's something that's alive. When it is planted in us by the Holy Spirit, it begins to change us. It ferments and grows. It makes us gracious and merciful. It's powerful because it changes us. As we've been forgiven, we become those who love, who want to forgive others. Even as we struggle, we pray, Lord, help me to forgive. I love the thought of showing mercy to this person. Show me how to do it. I want to close with an illustration, an account written by Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know Corey Ten Boom, at least that name. Her family in the Netherlands hid some Jews in their house from the Nazis during World War II. Before the war was over, they were caught and the family was sent to concentration camps and Corey Ten Boom and her sister ended up in a concentration camp. I encourage you to read the book that she wrote called The Hiding Place. Of course, they experienced many indignities there. Uh, You can imagine that. You've seen and read about what the Nazis did in those concentration camps. But this is an account that she wrote of what happened after the war. 
Her sister did not survive, but she did survive. And Corrie ten Boom was speaking, it's in 1947, in a church in Germany, and her theme was forgiveness. And after her talk, she sees a man walking up to her. I'll just read exactly what she says. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. This man who had been a guard at Ravensbrück the concentration camp where we had been sent. He was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. He continued, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and again the hand came out, Fraulein, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven by God, and I could not. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. He says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with coldness, clutching my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. Those who have been forgiven have the power to forgive. What she did is what all Christians are called to do. So may God show us the healing power, every broken heart, every broken soul, every torn apart mind, every shattered emotion. May God give you the healing power of grace and mercy, receiving it from Christ, then being healed as you show it to others. Amen. The cross, Lord Jesus, the cross. We don't, I confess, I don't understand the enormity of what happened there. I read about it. We all sing about it. We talk about it. It only comes to us in drips and drabbles, Lord, because it's too much for us to even fathom how much it cost you to forgive us. And yet you did, Lord. 
willingly, willingly. Pray, Lord, that that same grace would flood into our hearts. May it transform our marriages, Lord Jesus. May it transform our family life. May it transform friendships. Lord, pray for those friendships that are hard and broken, where faces are turned against each other. Lord, heal all these relationships. And as you do that, heal us, Lord, your broken people. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The cross, Paul said in Galatians 6, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing about the cross, we talk about the cross, we read about the cross. It's part of our theology, our doctrine, our faith, but friends, it's more than that. It's the way, the power, the means that we live our Christian life. Without it, we can't live it. Fanny Crosby, whose hymns we often sing, um, lost her sight when she was an infant. And the way she lost her sight was because a quack doctor, the regular doctor was out of town, a quack doctor came to treat this little baby and put this foolish medicine on her eyes, which actually caused her to lose her eyesight. But she was never bitter. Here's, here's some of the poetry that this blind poet wrote. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star shed his beams around me. That's my benediction. May the grace and mercy that found you flow out from you with kindness to all those who need your forgiveness.